Okay, the story begins. Welcome, friends. We are on the bottom of page five. We've explored the Moda Ani. Thank you, God, for returning my soul. We've explored the Natilat Yadayim, the ritual hand washing, which learned about how to integrate the soul rather than the soul being swallowed up by our negative emotions. We've learned about the value of the Jewish body, Asher Yatsar. And now we're up to the next prayer at the bottom of page five. Elokai Neshama, my God, the soul which you have given within me. Again, thanking God for, for the soul. This prayer is thanking God, right? He gave me my soul back. It's very similar to, to Moda'ani. So we have to take a little bit of a history lesson. Let's rewind a little bit. You know what? Before, before we get into that, let's read the prayer quickly in English together. Before, so that way we know what we're discussing. It's not a long prayer. We'll read it in English. Bottom of page five. My God, the soul which you have given within me is pure. You have created it. You have formed it. You have breathed it into me. You have preserved it within me. You will eventually take it from me and restore it within me in the time to come. So long as the soul is within me, I offer thanks to you, Lord my God, and God of my fathers, master of all works, Lord of all souls, blessed are you, Lord, who restores souls to dead bodies. So on a very basic level, thank you, God, for returning me, my soul. In, Tal in the Talmudic era, and even prior to the Talmudic era, when this blessing was penned, most of the blessings were penned by Ezra the scribe and his court uh, following the destruction of the first temple. And when this blessing was first penned by Ezra, it was actually established to have been recited as soon as you wake up in the morning. As soon as you wake up in the morning, you recite this blessing. We can't do that. Does anybody know why? Because we're not sure. Exactly. It's just logistically or halachically, there's, there's problems. Our hands are not clean. We didn't say natilati daim. And we're just, we're not in any position as soon as we wake up in bed, especially if we wake up on the wrong side of the bed. We're not in any position to recite blessings. In, Tal in the Talmudic era and prior to that, where people were a little bit holier, you can assume that their hands were clean even while they slept. You can assume that their hands didn't go anywhere unwanted. Us regular folk, as we progress through the exile, we lose, uh, we don't necessarily have the same level of control of our, over ourselves, subconscious control. And it's very likely that our hands are unclean while we're sleeping. And when I say clean, not just spiritually, but physically. You don't know what happens to your hands when you're sleeping. They're all over the place. Um. <laughs> So now we're unable to recite the blessing until we wash our hands. So the tradition became to recite the blessing after you wash your hands. But wait a minute. I wake up in the morning. I need to thank God for my soul. What do I do? I can't recite the blessing. That's where Moda'ani came into the picture. Moda'ani was a later establishment to compensate for this blessing, which we were unable to recite right away. And there is a slight difference between the two. Moda'ani is a very general thank you for the soul. This blessing, again, thanks God for the soul, but in a lot more detail, much more specifics.
And today we're going to get into those specifics. Let's analyze the blessing for a moment. Take a look at the, let's read the first line. In the English, my God, the soul which you have given within me is pure. Elokai, my God, neshamash, netatabi, the soul that you have given me, tohorahi. It's a pure soul. What does that mean? I mean, we could, we could just take it for face value. The soul is pure. But let, what does that mean? What is a pure soul? Any thoughts? No, it's we, in Tanya, we learned that the soul was, the soul is a part of God, right? Good. So Good. it's, it's separate from the dirty body. <laughs> okay. Okay. <clears throat> it's pure. Sorry, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt. I, yeah, I, not at I all. can't hear anything at the moment because of call came to my phone and it stole the audio from my earbuds and i'm not sure i hope it's recording the audio but Uh-oh. give me just a second to <laughs> how, how long try ago to was get it this audio back i hate technology sometimes i know me too so it's recording. Our, our question was just in case the, the recording didn't pick it up i guess we'll find out but Okay, I like that. Unaffected by whatever the whatever ringer it's been going through in our in our daily life. Okay, I like Sorry, that. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Did you hear what I said before? I because I can hear a thing. Yeah, yeah, we heard you. Okay. Well, Which, ho- hopefully everything. Hopefully got it's recorded. been recorded. Yeah. <laughs> now we'll have to do this again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what I miss about two minutes worth. So, so we're asking, what does it mean that the soul is pure? What does pure mean? When you think of the word pure, what comes to mind? Um, well, I know it's not a physical thing. It's um, the, there's no, I guess I have to go back to Tanya for this. Like there's the klipa and the. Um, We're smiling. Cause that's what David said earlier. But yes. Yes. <laughs> But I didn't get so specific, though, as you did. So, so t- take a look at the perspective of the soul. The way I like to understand pure in this context is the perspective that the soul has. The soul comes from a very pure place, which means it has a very pure perspective on life. Which means, if you were to... <laughs> Imagine your, your new Chabad rabbi just comes straight out of Crown Heights. Start having a conversation with him. And it's like, where did you come from, man? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of, of this. The soul comes down from heaven and it's like, what, what are you talking about? So if, if you were to interview the soul, the soul's perspective on life is that the reality of God 
is taken for granted. No questions at all. And the fact that there can be anything else besides God or anything that's even antithetical to God, that's a novelty. Like, what? <laughs> you kidding me? That's the soul. Like, it, it's so pure. It doesn't even relate to that. It, it almost doesn't believe that. There could be a reality that perceives themselves independent of God, as independent of God, or even antithetical to God. What are you talking about? The soul itself, though, the fact that there is a God, you don't have to prove God to the soul. It's just so clear. It's just so obvious. Nothing can adulterate this soul. Nothing can confuse it. Nothing can, no ringer can, that it goes through can, can ruin its perspective. The body, on the other hand, the animal soul, on the other hand, is the exact opposite perspective. The default perspective, I am independent. I'm my own person. I have my own agenda. I have my own life. And theoretically, I can be antithetical to God. My values can be antithetical to his. And perhaps he doesn't even exist. Maybe he doesn't even matter. So from the body slash animal soul's perspective, an in independent reality is what we take for granted. And God is a novelty. We have to learn about God. We have to internalize God. Like the famous teaching of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. He said, God, you didn't create the world in such a fair way. If you would have put lust in a book, you would have put self-interest in a book. You would have put hatred and all these negative things in books that, and we would learn about them. And love, passion, purpose, meaning, what we're here for, mitzvahs, all the good stuff was right in front of our eyes. <laughs> it would have been so easy, right? That's what the soul is. But God, you did it the other way around. We have to learn about loving God. We have to learn about loving our fellow. We have to learn about having a purpose and a meaning in our existence. We have to learn about Torah and mitzvahs. And lust comes natural. Hatred comes natural. Destruction, destructivity, I don't know if that's a word or not, comes naturally. Not a word. It comes naturally. All of these things come naturally. So God, you, it, you did it backwards. It's not fair. That's the difference between the soul perspective and the body perspective. The soul perspective has a very pure perspective. I recently heard a quote. Those who believe, so there's two types of people. Those who believe have no questions. Those who don't believe have no answers. That's the difference between the soul and the body. Having a pure perspective and a unpure perspective now our natural default perspective which one are we going to choose are we going to choose the body or the soul okay hopefully we'll choose the soul and davening is help part of davening is helping us better relate to the soul better integrate into the soul or better integrate the soul into us if you will and integrate that perspective into us the soul ultimately came from the highest of worlds of Atsilos and even higher than that. And, and the analogy that's given, we've mentioned this analogy before, but I absolutely love it. The piano. So you look at a piano, right? And three different characters will understand the piano in three different ways. 
if you're musically inclined, you look at a piano and you see music. You see what its purpose is. If you're not musically inclined, you see furniture. Right? Something to put picture frames on. <laughs> I, I, I knew this rabbi who had a, he had a, this big grand piano. He says, you know what the story of this piano is? <laughs> he says, I used to have a small piano and we had picture frames. But as I got my more kids and my family grew, we needed a bigger piano. And then you have the woodpecker. What does the woodpecker see? Dinner. Which reality is technically all three realities are correct. But which reality is most pure, most true? The one who sees music, the one who sees its purpose. You could try explaining to the woodpecker. It's not just dinner. There's more than that. Oh, come on. <laughs> you believe that? <laughs> right? Or you exp- fine. Try to explain to somebody a little bit more sophisticated. You know, it's furniture. You're putting pictures from it, but it actually does something much more than that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it doesn't. The soul, you don't have to convince it. It sees it. It gets it. It's pure. That's what it means. It's pure. The, this pure perspective doesn't demand or require answers to the questions. It doesn't have questions. Now, you're always going to have questions, but the questions don't matter. But, you know, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, the story goes that he had um, an, a, an incredible sense of clarity when he would study, when he would learn. There's two types of clarity. You get answers to your questions or the material is so clear to you that you have no questions. That's the difference, by the way, between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Two versions of the Talmud. They're about 100 years apart. The Jerusalem Talmud is significantly shorter than the Babylonian Talmud because it's pretty straightforward. This is the law. Relatively. The Babylonian Talmud has questions, answers. Well, is that answer sufficient? That seems to contradict something back and forth. And all this, you finally arrive at a conclusion after all these turns and twists. That's the Babylonian Talmud. In Babylon, being that they were in exile, they had less clarity than that than, than um, in Jerusalem in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, where there was more spiritual clarity, they were more spiritually in tune. They didn't have less questions because they were less intelligent. They had less questions because they had more clarity. So just to clarify, so the Jerusalem Talmud came first and then the exile, so then the Babylonian? Yeah. Not, there's, no, they weren't, there's no Roman Roman No Talmud. No Roman Talmud. <laughs> Um, most of the Jewish scholars were in, they were around the same time period, but in terms of when they were both recorded, they were recorded about a hundred years apart. They were both authored uh, about a hundred years apart. Many scholars would travel back and forth. You had many scholars who would from Israel who would study in Babylon and many from Babylon who would study in Jerusalem. And you'll have many Jerusalem scholars quoted in the Babylonian Talmud and vice versa. Uh, for that reason. But go, going back to Rabbi Shinozaman of Liadi, the, the Al-Tzereb, the author of the Tanya, 
He had this immense clarity, similar to the Jerusalem Talmud. There was no questions. He, he got it. There was once uh, an individual visiting town who was studying a piece of Talmud. And he had a very difficult time understanding something in Rashi's commentary. It just wasn't clear. And he tried asking different people, getting different answers. None of the answers were sufficient. He knew that Rabbi Shneur Zalman was a great scholar, so he brought his Talmud over to Rabbi Shneur Zalman. He says, can you explain this to me? Rabbi Shneur Zalman starts reading and translating. The guy goes, whoa. As he's reading and translating and hearing it from Rabbi Shneur Zalman's perspective and hearing him interpret it, the questions just dissipated. It was just so, it wasn't a miracle. It was just, maybe it was, but it was just so clear that the question was gone. Sometimes we have questions. Sometimes we feel lost. And I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't look for answers. Those answers are important. But what's key is connecting to the pure essence of the soul, that part of the soul that has no questions, because it just gets it. Now, do we get it? Maybe not, <laughs> but the soul gets it. And if we can better integrate the soul, we can be more comfortable with that clarity. Take a look at the next, um, the next line. We'll, we'll read from the top again. We'll read from the beginning. Be, before we move on, any questions, thoughts, comments? Controversy. We're good? We're all in the arc here? Okay. My God, the soul which you have given within me is pure. You have created it. You have formed it. You have breathed it into me. God breathed the soul within us. Contrast this to the rest of creation. How did God create most of the world? Ex Nilo. Ex okay, good. He, but but what what medium did he use? He spoke. Right? He spoke. Right. God said, "Let there be light." There was light. Let there be a firmament. There was a firmament. So most of creation was done by means of speech. But when it comes to the soul, God formed Adam and Eve, or formed Adam with the palms of his hands out of the dust of the earth. And as we read over here, he breathes the soul into us breathes into all of us, but we know this specifically from the Torah of him breathing it into Adam. What is the difference between breathing and speaking? Breathing comes from your, um, like the, your, your center, like where your soul is centered. Right, right. The diaphragm, right? That's, that's breathing, what I was trying to say, yeah. The diaphragm. Breathe. All those voice lessons paid off. Breathing, <laughs> you get to learn a little about the body. Breathing is much deeper than speaking. You could speak for a long time. You could chew someone's ear off, right? And that's the thing goes, you could speak for hours, but how long can you fill a balloon for? It's a lot more exerting because it, it comes from a lot, a, a much deeper place within. So the analogy of God giving the analogy that's used when for God creating the world speech. But when it comes to our soul, 
the connection to God is much deeper. It's more like breath. That's why the soul is so pure. It comes from the essence of God. In other words, think about the relationship of words. Not the content of the words, but just the, the, um, the breath of the words to you compared to the relationship of your innermost breath to you. Which one have you invested more in? When you breathe, when you take a breath, when you exhale, you're investing a lot more of you than were you to have spoken. You don't have to take a deep breath beforehand. You kind of just do it. It just comes right off the throat. Who does God invest in? Now, obviously, God create, God cares about the world. And obviously, we need to take care of the world. But the center of the world is us. The world is here to facilitate us. Somebody asked me recently, this might be walking on thin water, but I'm, or what's it called, thin ice, but I'm just going to say it. Somebody asked me recently, what is Judaism's view on the whole green movement, the environmentalists, and, and what does Judaism say about that? Judaism obviously demands we take care of God's world. But understanding that that world is important in the context of its creator and its purpose. On the one hand, we take care of the world. God instructs Noah to build three layers of the ark, three stories in the ark, one for the humans, one for the animals, the bottom layer. Anybody know the bottom floor? Plants. What? Vegetation, plants. No. It's a good guess, though. The garbage. An entire floor just for garbage. You could have thrown it overboard. No, you got to take care of the world. So on the one hand, God wants us to take care of his world. On the other hand, that if that becomes the center of our life, then we're worshiping the world, not its creator. It's just like the body is important because it's there to house the soul. The world is important because it has a purpose. How did I get into this? Okay, because who, what is God? <laughs> I'm getting old. No, okay, what is God? <laughs> what is God investing in? Speaking is not speaking is effort, effortless. Breathing is a lot more investment because God is investing a lot more in the soul. That is the prime center. Take a look at the next. uh, Going back to the top line. There's so many layers of understanding here and meaning. My God, the soul which you have given within me is pure. A question we must ask ourselves. We learned this in chapter 29 of Tanya. Am I a body that has a soul? Or am I a soul that is contained in the body? What is the who is the real me? What is the real pers- what what is the perspective I have on life? We in the about 20 minutes ago at the beginning of the lesson, we discussed the difference between the body perspective and the soul perspective, the the difference between a pure perspective and the impure perspective. The soul perspective, I take God for granted. And anything else is is nuance. Like, really? Whereas the body perspective, 
God is a nuance. There's a God. Come on, prove it to me. So which one is the real me? If you're a tzaddik, you've totally internalized the soul. That's the real you, right? Like um, the famous sage Hillel used to say, I'm going to do my body a favor. His body was externalized. The soul was internalized. But for us regular folk, our default setting is the body. Our default setting is the animal soul. Our default setting is our own comfort, our own pleasures, our own self-interest. And we have to work on integrating that soul. And that's why it says, my God, the soul, which you have given within me is pure. I'm just a body. The soul, it's something you have given me. It's not who I am. It's just something you have given me. And it's pure. Hopefully throughout the process of prayer and beyond prayer, throughout the process of Torah study, and beyond that, throughout the process of mitzvah observance, we'll better internalize that soul. We'll better um, make that a part of us. So it's not just something God gave us. It's actually who we are. Today's Hayom Yom. It reminds me of this. Today's Hayom Yom discusses the value of learning Hasidus, learning Hasidic teachings learning the inner dimension of the Torah. You remember today's Hayyam Yom, it says that the power of, or the impact that Hasidus has, what would indicate that you learned the Tanya or other Hasidic works properly and internalized it? So Hasidus changes our perception of reality and reveals what something really is, what, what the truth behind something. So normally when you look at a person, we have an impression on them. They give us a certain vibe, and that's who they are. They're nice. They're not nice. They're ugly. They're not. Whatever it is, we have this natural perception. But Hasidus challenges us to change our perception of reality and look at who a person really is. And it's not only with people. It's with the world at large change our perception of the world and see what the world really is. But that requires internalizing the soul. Shifting from the soul is something that God gave me to the soul is something who I am. It's me. It's not just something God gave me. The natural perspective, yes, something God gave me. In reality, it's who I am. It's me. But there needs to be some sort of paradigm shift. That's what learning the Tanya does. It gets us more comfortable with the soul. I had a great story to share and I forgot it. <laughs> to share it for another time unless it, unless it comes back. Here's the story. Okay. Whew. Spared by the sword. Okay. Here's the story. There was a veteran mashpia. You know what a mashpia is? Mashpia is a Hebrew word. Uh, a watcher. Not exactly. Mashgiach is a watcher. Oh. Mashpia. Uh, a mashpia means a mentor. Huh. Everybody needs a mashpia. A spiritual guide, a spiritual mentor, somebody who they look up to, to spiritually 
who they can get advice from. So there was a well-known mashpia in the yeshiva, in the Chabad yeshiva in the town of Kfar Chabad. His name was Reb Shleim Chaim Kesselman. Reb Shleim Chaim Kesselman was well-known. A lot of good stories about him. Unfortunately, he was ill. He had to go to Jerusalem for some sort of surgery. And when he was in Jerusalem, another doctor advised that he doesn't necessarily need surgery. Let's put him on this special diet. And the diet somehow, I don't know if it was the food he was eating. There were some, something happened where he wasn't able to taste anything. This was pre-COVID. He wasn't able to taste anything. <laughs> so food was totally tasteless. It was some sort of medication they put, on, put him on, and, and he had a very limited diet, eating only certain vegetables, and he couldn't even taste them. And Rav Shlema was upset. He was frustrated. So his students asked him, Rabbi, why are you so frustrated? You're a rabbi. You're a man of God. You're spiritual. It's not all about the food. And you've been preaching that. You've been preaching the deeper meaning of life. All of a sudden, no food. You're frustrated. He wasn't like me. If he doesn't have his Diet Coke, he starts panicking. <laughs> he was the real deal. So he said, I, I'm not frustrated because I can't taste the food. I'm frustrated because I now realize how body-centered I am, not soul-centered I am. All this time, I occasionally would avoid eating food with salt, not for health reasons, but because I didn't want to indulge my body. didn't want to overdo my body pleasure, and I wanted to be more soul-focused. Now I can't even taste the food. <laughs> I never thought of doing that before. I realized how body-centered I am, and that frustrated him. He says, I realize how true this prayer is. My God, the soul which you have given with me is pure. The soul that you gave me, it's something you gave me. It's not who I am. Now, in truth and reality, it is who we are. This is our true essence. And there's different ways of waking it up. Sometimes it's learning a little Hasidah. Sometimes it's praying. Sometimes it could be, God forbid, situational. A situation happens where we wake up and we say, this is who I am. Sometimes we just have faith. This is who I am. In fact, take a look at the top of page six. Interesting line here. Top line. So long as the soul is within me, I offer thanks to you. While I have my soul, I could thank God. The Hebrew word, if you look on the Hebrew side, mode ani. Similar expression as our previous prayer. Mode ani. Mode ani not only means I thank God. Again, translations are limiting. I concede to God. Although it's some, the soul something you gave me, it, technically it's on a, at least on a perceptual level, it's not who I am. Nevertheless, while it's within me, I can concede to you. I can concede to you that you are the reality. I can concede to you, God, that you are the truth. Next time we're, spirit, we're feeling spiritually weak, 
We're feeling spiritually dry. We're feeling, we wake up and it's like, <sighs> feeling blah. Reflect on this line. While the soul is within me, I'm able to offer thanks to God. Why? I'm not feeling it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't feel that I care right now. It doesn't matter. The soul is within me. And that soul is pure. That soul gets it. Do I get it? I don't know. But my soul gets it. And if my soul gets it, I can concede to God. And if I can internalize that soul, I can become more comfortable with my soul throughout the process of prayer. Everything can click. And that that this all goes along with the concluding occlusion of the blessing. Take a look at the last line of the blessing. Blessed are you, are you, Lord, who restores souls to dead bodies. How often do we feel that we're just a dead body? Not, not just physically dead, but we feel blah. We don't feel spiritually motivated. We don't feel particularly inspired. Well, guess what? God restores souls to dead bodies. On, on a very simple meaning, on a very literal level, it's referring to the time when we were born. God gave it the body life. It refers to the time of the future resurrection of the dead. But it also refers to right now, sometimes we feel dead. But God restores our soul. There was the well-known prophet Chavakuk. We've quoted this in chapter 33 of Tanya. Chavakuk, the age of the prophets, realized that people were having difficulty with mitzvahs. People's mitzvah observance were very dead. <laughs> For lack of better words, people were not motivated. The mitzvahs were burdensome. Look, imagine I give you a to-do list with 613 things on them. And each of the 613 uh, things I need you to do have myriads of, sab, uh, of subcategories. <laughs> you might feel overwhelmed. You might feel like this is a burden. You might feel like this is not a, this is a bit of a dead relationship. So Chavakuk says, I have an idea. Let me reframe this. I'm going to narrow this down all to one mitzvah. If you get this one mitzvah, you have it all. Anybody know what that one mitzvah was? Faith. Chavakuk said, it's really just one mitzvah. It's just 613 ways of doing it. It's the one mitzvah of faith. And now that you have the one mitzvah of faith, you don't feel like you have 613 burdens, 613 things weighing on you. You have one thing to do, express your faith. It's just different ways of doing it, 613 ways of doing it with myriads of details. And as it says there in that chapter of Tanya, that type of faith is invigorating and actually restores us from dead, from, from death. We sometimes feel spiritually dead, but when we ignite our faith, our soul connection to God, and realize that this soul that he gave me, although it's something he gave me, it's not who I am. Nevertheless, it's pure. And while it's in me, I have the ability to internalize it and offer thanks to God. This is going to restore life to the dead. If you're feeling dead, remember that the soul is still there. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>